Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for May 2018. And as those of you who follow may know, it's actually April and May 2018. It was a pretty quiet month in April, so we didn't put a podcast out. But May has been big with all the big meetings in Europe and the US, so we've got a lot to talk about. So let's start with Eolia. ECMO for Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, published by the Eolia Trial Group, Reva and ECMO.net in the New England Journal, online first in May. So we've been waiting for this trial for a long time. With CESAR trial, uh, influenza and advances in technology increasing the use of ECMO for ARDS, We have all been wondering about the evidence base growing and when and if we should initiate this therapy. This trial is going to be heavily debated and it is a must-read article. The primary outcome, which was 60-day mortality, was no different. But equating that to ECMO is not useful in ARDS is a long bow. So let's look why. So what did they do? They included adults with the American European Consensus Conference definition for ARDS who were endotracheally intubated, ventilated for less than seven days and met some pretty severe ARDS severity criteria. Now I'll comment that they used the American European Consensus Conference definition rather than the Berlin definition which probably just reflects the start of the trial preceding the change in definitions. The inclusion criteria were a PF ratio less than 50 for greater than 3 hours or less than 80 for greater than 6 hours or arterial pH less than 7.25 with a CO2 greater than 60 for greater than 6 hours, a respiratory rate greater than 35 and a uh, plateau pressure of less than 32 centimetres of water. Uh, in terms of ventilator, ventilator optimization, they said you had to have an FI2 of 0.8 or greater, tidal volume 6 mils per kilo predicted body weight, and PEEP greater than 10. Physicians were encouraged to use neuromuscular blocking agents and proning prior to randomization. And other adjunctive therapies like nitric recruitment maneuvers, oscillation, almatrine infusion were allowed at the discretion of clinicians. Randomization was stratified by center and duration of mechanical ventilation before randomization and that was less or greater than 72 hours. Non-ECMO centers with expertise in ARDS could enroll if an ECMO retrieval team could establish ECMO within two hours of randomization of ECMO. So that seems reasonable. What did they do in the ECMO group? Uh, they got VV percutaneous ECMO heparin for APTT of 40 to 55 or an anti-10A of 0.1 to 0.3. The control group received the express trial ventilation strategy with uh, neuromuscular blocking agents and proning encouraged. Adjunctive therapies were allowed if oxygen targets weren't met. And really importantly, crossover to ECMO was allowed if refractory hypoxemia 
to find a SATs less than 80% for six hours occurred and the treating physician thought no irreversible multi-organ failure was present. Now, that's going to be debated about the crossover, but it's likely uh, it was there was no other way to do this study because the centres may not have had uh, either equipoise not to use ECMO at all um, or would have a, had a hard time arguing to their ethics committees that routine or standard care didn't include ECMO. Uh, in terms of power and sample size, it was based on an expected 60-day mortality of 60% in the control group and 40% in the ECMO group, a 20% absolute risk reduction, um, and a sample of 331 participants was required for 80% power and 5% alpha error. Two-sided triangular design stopping rules were included, which allowed early stopping if there was evidence of ECMO superiority uh, or lack of difference or futility or harm. So what did they find? After 240 patients were enrolled at the fourth planned sequential interim analysis, the lower boundary of stopping rule triangle was crossed and therefore the trial was stopped at the recommendation of the DSMB due to futility, which is disappointing for everyone. Uh, what else did they find? Well, at baseline of the 1,015 eligible patients, around 560 were excluded for medical or consent reasons. And importantly, 166 were excluded of the remaining 450 because they already were on ECMO. Therefore, 124 were enrolled and assigned to ECMO and 125 were enrolled and assigned to conventional ventilation. The characteristics were similar at baseline, 45% had bacterial pneumonia, 18% viral, 78% had severe sepsis or septic shock, and about 60% were prone to pre-randomization. In terms of treatment, ECMO was initiated at a mean of 3.3 hours after randomization, 96% of it was FemJug, 40% were retrieved by mobile ECMO teams, um, it lasted, the, or the ECMO run was for a mean of 15 days. The ECMO group had a greater decrease in tidal volume, plateau pressure, driving pressure, respiratory rate from baseline with a greater normalization of blood gases compared to the conventional group. The conventional group received protective ventilation, 90% uh, were proned, 83% received nitric or prostacyclin, 100% got paralysed and 28% crossed over to the ECMO group because of refractory hypoxia. So that's a reasonably big cohort. The primary outcome, mortality at 60 days, was 35% in the ECMO group versus 46% in the control group, which is a uh, risk ratio of 0.76, 95% intervals uh, 0.55 to 1.04, p-value of 0.09. Um, the hazard ratio of death within 60 days in the ECMO compared to control was 
95% confidence intervals 0.47 to 1.04, p-value 0.07. So remember, so that the expected baseline mortality was 60%, it was actually 46% in the control group. The effect size they were looking for was an absolute risk reduction of 20%, and it was 11%. And that's going to be a big issue, isn't it? Because they uh, they overestimated both the baseline mortality and the effect size, and 20% mortality uh, reduction in mortality is a pretty big effect size, and um, they got stopped early. So it's an underpowered study. In terms of secondary outcome, treatment failure, death by day 60 in ECMO versus death or ECMO by day 60 was significantly different, but I'm not sure that really means a lot. Um, the ECMO group was associated with less uh, renal replacement therapy, 50 versus 32 days, and increased days free from renal failure and cardiac failure. Mortality at 60 days was 57% in that crossover group in the control arm, compared to 41% in the non-ECMO control group. Um, this group was sicker in terms of respiratory function uh, at enrolment um, and a comparison of the same severity of illness and respiratory function patients in the ECMO group wasn't provided. Um, the ECMO group had a higher rate of thrombocytopenia, bleeding requiring transfusion, and a lower rate of ischemic stroke, and there was no difference in hemorrhagic stroke, pneumothorax, or VAP. So what does all that mean? Well, earlier ECMO for very severe ARDS was not statistically superior to conventional mechanical ventilation with rescue ECMO. But is an 11% 60-day survival difference important? And did the overestimation of baseline treatment effect and baseline mortality resulting in an underpowered study change how we view the study? Did the crossover dilute the benefit of ECMO and how do we interpret that? Um, earlier ECMO was associated with more use of protective ventilator settings and improved blood gases and less renal and cardiac failure, but that didn't equate to other outcomes. There's a question that I have, which is could ECMO for less severe ARDS or earlier in ARDS be of benefit? So Eolia doesn't answer this question. And it would be interesting to know the characteristics and the reasons for initiation in, of ECMO in the 166 patients who are commenced prior to enrolment. Was this actually a less severe and earlier ARDS cohort? Um, is that a group who may or may not benefit from early ECMO allowing protective ventilation settings to be maintained? Does that large number of patients who were put on earlier uh, and excluded from the study represent a lack of equipoise in the investigators and does that mean something? So overall this is not a trial of ECMO versus no ECMO. Rather it is a study of earlier versus later ECMO in very severe ARDS. You will interpret it how you think and it will probably reflect your biases. Um, you can interpret it as being positive for ECMO or neutral for ECMO. So we will have to wait for more evidence to come out before 
we can really definitively establish the benefit harm or neither for ECMO compared to conventional ventilation in ARDS. So there was a second ECMO paper published this month, um, not quite as high-powered, but still interesting, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine for the ECMO-NET uh, Rev and uh, IDEA study group. And this asked us to look at some of the nuances of ECMO as a rescue therapy in severe ARDS. This retrospective cohort study looked at the outcomes of immunocompromised patients with moderate or severe ARDS who received ECMO in 10 ICUs in seven countries from 2008 to 2015. Um, now, immunodeficiency was defined as hematological malignancy, active solid tumour or having received specific anti-tumour treatment within the previous year, solid organ transplant, uh, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or long-term or high-dose corticosteroids. A recent immunodeficiency diagnosis uh, was uh, defined as the diagnosis was confirmed in fewer than 30 days prior to ICU admission. The authors identified 203 ECMO-treated immunocompromised patients. Overall, six-month survival was only 30%. Factors associated with improved outcomes were a time span of less than 30 days between immunodeficiency diagnosis and ECMO cannulation, so earlier sort of diagnosis. Factors associated with worse outcomes were hematological malignancies, increasing age, higher PaCO2, higher driving pressure and a lower pre-ECMO platelet count. Overall, this group did poorly, particularly if we remember the 60-day survival in Eolia was 65%. In this cohort, six-month survival rates uh, were 40% in the solid organ transplant group, 37% in the uh, corticosteroid group, 26% in AIDS, and 24% in hematological malignancy, 20% in solid tumour patients, poor survival, high complication rates, burdensome human and financial costs are concerning. I guess the question is, are there selected groups in this cohort of patients in whom benefits may outweigh the burden? Okay, let's move away from ECMO and go to JAMA and look at intubation-related stuff. So the effects of use of a bougie versus endotracheal tube and stylet on first attempt intubation success among patients with difficult airways undergoing emergency intubation. So this is the BEAM trial, bougie use in emergency airway management. And it sets out to answer the question, does initial use of a bougie during emergency department intubation of patients with difficult airway improve first pass intubation success? This single centre study randomised 757 adults who underwent emergency orotracheal intubation in the emergency department with a Macintosh laryngoscope blade, either direct or video, for respiratory arrest, difficult breathing, or airway protection to a bougie 
um, versus no bougie. The intubating physician retrospectively decided if difficult airway characteristics were present. Hmm. So what did they find? 757 enrolled, 380 deemed to have a difficult airway retrospectively. That's 50%. 96% were intubated with the CMAC. So that's just an interesting change in practice fact. The primary outcome of first intubation success which was successful ET placement with first device passed during first laryngoscope insertion, was 96% with the bougie, 82% standard, absolute difference 14%, confidence intervals 95, uh, 9 to 20%. For patients without difficult airway, first pass success rate was 99% versus 92%. So exploratory analyses suggest bougie effect, or you know, being better, was present in several subgroups, patients requiring cervical immobilization, obese patients, and patients with incomplete glottic views, Cormac and Lahane two to four. The Kaplan-Meier estimate of time to first intubation showed significant difference between groups favoring the bougie group, and hypoxia occurred in 13 to 14% of patients and 1% of patients had esophageal intubation. So what do we make of this? Well, the authors conclude that orotracheal intubation with stylet and ET led to improved first attempt intubation success in patients with at least one difficult airway characteristic. And 96% of intubations use the CMAC, so it's a study of CMAC with and without bougie. The retrospective allocation of airway status by the intubating physician is a pretty big issue for me because if you found it hard to get the tube in, you might be tempted to say, I'm so good that that must have been a difficult airway. But I don't know, maybe that doesn't matter. Success is higher in all groups, so maybe it really doesn't matter. And then finally, does it actually make a difference to patients? So doing it a bit faster and with a bit less sort of transient hypoxia, does it matter? Maybe it does, uh, I'm not sure. Okay, back to the New England Journal of Medicine, some more high-hitting research. This is restrictive versus liberal fluid therapy for major abdominal surgery. So does a restrictive or liberal perioperative IV fluid regime lead to better outcomes for high-risk patients undergoing major abdominal surgery. This pragmatic international trial randomized 3,000 patients who had an increased risk of complications while undergoing major abdominal surgery to receive either restrictive intravenous fluid regimen during and up to 24 hours after surgery and this group received a median IV fluid intake of 3.7 litres, so that was the restrictive group, or they got randomised to the liberal intravenous fluid regimen during and up to 24 hours after surgery, and they received a median intravenous fluid intake of 6 litres. That's a pretty big difference, 3.7 to 6.1 litres. They report the primary outcome was disability-free survival at one year, and was 81.9% in the restrictive group compared to 82.3% in the liberal group. And that was p-values of 0.6. 
disability was defined as a persistent impairment in health status lasting greater than six months, as measured by a score of at least 24 points on the HUDAS questionnaire, which reflects a disability level of at least 25%, the threshold point between disabled and not disabled. The HUDAS questionnaire was completed by the patient or by a proxy, spouse or caregiver, if the patient was not able to complete it. That's a pretty big deal doing all that, and the authors, investigators, have got to be commended for such a thorough study. What else did they find? Acute kidney injury was 8.6% in restrictive versus 5% in liberal. So that was significant. Septic complications or death, 22% restrictive. 20% liberal, not significant. Surgical site infection, 16.5% restrictive, 13.6% liberal, P of 0.02. And renal replacement therapy was 0.9 versus 0.3. Uh, and that was P of value of 0.048. But between group differences were not significant there after adjustment for multiple testing. And there was no difference in IC length of stay on mechanical ventilation duration. So, overall, the restrictive fluid regimen was not associated with a higher rate of disability-free survival than a liberal fluid regimen in patients at increased risk for complications during major abdominal surgery. But the secondary outcome, restrictive fluid, was associated with a higher rate of acute kidney injury. So, what do you think should happen? 3.5 litres or 6 litres? I'll leave it to you to debate. Let's go back to the Blue Journal. Low-dose nocturnal dexmedetomidine prevents ICU delirium. So the intersection between sleep, sedation, critical illness and delirium remains important and unsolved. Could dexmedetomidine used as a nocturnal agent improve sleep and reduce delirium? This prospective Phase 2 RCT randomized 100 delirium-free critically ill adults receiving sedatives to receive uh, nocturnal, which is 9.30 p.m. to 6.15 a.m., IV dex at 0.2 mics per kilo per hour, titrated by 0.1 mic per kilo per hour every 15 minutes until a goal, Richmond, agitation and sedation scale score of minus 1 or a maximum rate of 0.7 mics per kilo per hour was reached. Whew or they got placebo until ICU discharge. During the study infusion, all sedatives were halved, opioids were unchanged. Delirium assessed using the intensive care delirium screening checklist every 12 hours. Sleep was evaluated each morning by the Leeds Sleep Evaluation Questionnaire. Baseline data was similar, 62 years of age, 72% medical, 40% receiving no sedation at enrolment. 90% were ventilated, and it was two days in ICU prior to enrolment. The average age, average maximum dex rate was 0.5 mics per kilo per hour, and fewer dex patients received fentanyl infusions, 94 versus 76%, and their propofol use was lower, 22 versus 35 mics per kilo per minute. The primary outcome, nocturnal dexmedetomidine was associated with greater proportion of patients who remained delirium-free during ICU, 82 versus 54%, with a relative risk of 0.44. 
95 confidence intervals of 0.23 to 0.02, p-value of 0.006. The DEX group spent a lower proportion of the study days in a coma, p-value of 0.009, and a greater proportion of study days at RAS, score of minus 1 or greater, 55 versus 24%, p-value of less than 0.001. Pain was similar during the nocturnal period. The leads sleep evaluation questionnaires weren't different, uh, and there was no difference in hypotension, bradycardia, or both. So, in conclusion, nocturnal administration of low-dose dexmedetomidine in critically ill adults was associated with less ICU delirium, days spent with coma, and opiate requirements. Sleep and adverse events did not differ. That's pretty interesting. Presumably, they're going to go on and do a phase three study, and that will be really cool. Okay, a bit of cardiac surgery-related research for those of us who work in cardiothoracic ICUs and wonder what we should be doing. So first in JAMA, the effect of ticagrelor plus aspirin, ticagrelor alone or aspirin alone on saphenous vein graft patency one year after coronary artery bypass grafting. This prospective RCT enrolled 500 patients undergoing elective coronary artery surgery and randomized them one-to-one-to-one to those three groups um, receiving medication with, within 24 hours of surgery. High-risk patients, including a high risk of bleeding, were excluded. They report um, that the patients and physicians were unblinded. The primary outcome was one-year saphenous vein graft patency assessed by multi-slice CT angio or coronary angiography and adjudicated independently by a committee-blinded allocation. The rates were 89% for ticagrelor and aspirin, that's 89% patency, 83% ticagrelor alone, 77% aspirin alone, Um, and the difference between ticagrelor and aspirin versus aspirin alone was statistically significant. The difference between ticagrelor alone versus aspirin alone was not statistically significant. Uh, There were five major bleeding episodes, um, three in the tyke and aspirin and two in the tyke alone. So this suggests the use of ticagrelor over aspirin is associated with better one-year graft patency after CAGs in elective low-risk patient. Um, We don't know if it leads to better functional outcome. Uh, we don't we don't know if the bleeding risk would emerge as being greater over time or in the early post-operative period, but um, it does seem to suggest that ticagrelor and aspirin is superior, and I wonder if we will start seeing changes in our cardiac surgical population. The second uh, coronary artery bypass surgery paper published in the New England Journal by the radial investigators. Um, The debate about the benefit and risk of radial versus saphenous vein grafts uh, in addition to internal thoracic grafts to the LAD has been ongoing. Although angiographic studies have reported higher rates of radial graft patency, these have been underpowered to detect difference in clinical events. Although guidelines support the use of multiple arterial grafts, the great majority of patients in North America and Europe receive a saphenous vein graft in addition to internal thoracic or internal mammary grafts. So this study utilised the Radial Artery Database International Alliance, 
radial and performed a patient level combined analysis comparing six randomized controlled trials in which long-term outcomes were assessed and reported outcomes in radial artery grafts and saphenous vein grafts for coronary artery bypass. So there are 1,036 patients in the six trials with a mean follow-up of five years. The incidence of the primary outcome, composite of death, MI, or repeat revascularization, was significantly lower for the radial group, uh, hazard ratio of 0 0.67, 95% confidence intervals 0 0.49 to 0.9, p-value of 0 0.01. The incidence of secondary outcomes uh, graph patency on follow-up angiography was significantly lower for the radial group. Radial was also associated with lower incidence of AMI, hazard ratio of 0.72, P of 0.04, and repeat revascularization, hazard ratio of 0.5, but not a lower incidence of death from any cause. Subgroup analysis showed benefit for the radial group in the under 75 years of age cohort, women, absence of diabetes, absence of renal insufficiency, EF greater than 35% and left CERC as the target. So overall, radial versus saphenous graph was associated with lower rates of cardiac adverse events, particularly AMI and need for revascularization, and lower rates of graft occlusion at five years. There was no difference in survival, and subgroup analysis identifies populations who are likely to benefit more from radial grafts, that is, under 75-year-olds, women, no diabetes, no renal disease, good LVs, and the left circus, the target. Again, I wonder if this is something we should discuss and see implemented by our cardiac surgeons. Okay, let's finish up with the last study for the month that was published in New England Journal of Medicine by the Partner Investigators, a randomised trial of a family-supported intervention in intensive care units. This stepped-wedge cluster randomised trial examines the effect of a multi-component daily support intervention delivered by the interprofessional ICU team compared to usual care on surrogate hospital anxiety and depression score HADS at six months, as well as impact of event scores, quality of communication scale, modified patient perception of patient-centeredness scale, and mean length of ICU stay. So why did they do this? And I'll read from the introduction. In the US, one in five people die in or shortly after ICU discharge, and typically this involves decisions made by surrogates. Communication between clinicians and surrogates in ICU can cause problems, including failure to conduct timely interdisciplinary meetings with the family, missed opportunities to provide emotional support to surrogates, and inadequate discussion of prognosis, patients' values, and the option of comfort-focused treatment. These breakdowns in communication may contribute to the use of expensive, burdensome treatments that do not align with patients' values and preferences, and to long-term symptoms of psychological distress among surrogates. So what exactly did they do? So it was a stepped wedge cluster randomised design 
each ICU or cluster began in the control phase and transitioned to the intervention phase at a randomly assigned time, the wedge. The intervention delivery was a quality improvement program, while the long-term follow-up of surrogates was treated as research. This means surrogates were informed of the quality intervention and consented for follow-up. Crossover occurred every six months, and the trial was conducted in five ICUs uh, attached to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Centre. The patients were adults at high risk of dying with a lack of decision-making capacity and an, and an identified surrogate decision-maker. High risk of dying was defined as receipt of mechanical ventilation for at least four consecutive days, an estimated chance of death during hospitalisation of at least 40% as judged by the patient's attending physician, or an estimated chance of severe long-term functional impairment of at least 40% as judged by the patient's attending physician. The intervention was grounded in the theory of cognitive emotional decision-making, which suggests that medical decisions are influenced by both the effective and the cognitive challenges of making consequential health decisions. Therefore, the intervention entailed guideline-recommended strategies for providing emotional support to surrogates and for ensuring frequent clinician-family communication. It was delivered by members of the interprofessional ICU team and overseen by four to six nurses in each ICU called the partner nurses, nominated by the ICU director because they were thought to possess strong communication skills. The intervention involved three components. One, partner nurses received advanced communication training that focused on skills for supporting families of seriously ill patients. The 12-hour training included didactic teaching, modelling of the communication skills, practice of the skills with trained medical actors, and provision of structured feedback. Two, family support pathway was instituted where partner nurses met with families on a daily basis according to a standardised protocol and arranged clinician family meetings within 48 hours after enrolment and every five to seven days thereafter. Three, intensive support for implementation was provided to each ICU by a quality improvement specialist to incorporate the family support pathway into clinicians' workflow. What did they find? Well, the patient cohort over the three-year study period, 1,420 patients were included, 1,109 surrogates enrolled, and 809 completed six-month follow-up. The intervention group was older with higher severity of illness at baseline. Surrogate long-term psychological distress after adjustment for baseline characteristics, there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was the HAD score, at six months. There was no significant difference between the intervention group and the control group in the surrogate's symptoms of PTSD at six months. In terms of quality decision-making and clinician-family communication, it was better in the intervention group, as was the surrogate's rating of the patient and family-centeredness of care. In terms of healthcare utilisation, the mean length of stay in the ICU was significantly shorter in the intervention group, 6.7 days versus 7.4 days, 
as was mean hospital length of stay, which was 10.4 versus 13.5 days. Now, this effect was mediated by a shortened length of stay in the ICU among patients who died, 4.4 versus 6.8 days. In patients who survived to hospital discharge, ICU length of stay did not differ. Exploratory outcomes in hospital mortality was higher in the intervention group, 36 versus 29%, but six-month mortality did not differ. No difference in at six months in the mean CATS index of independence in activities of daily living, percentage of patients living independently at home was reported. So what does this mean? An intervention aimed at emotional and decision-making support for surrogates of critically ill patients at high risk of dying did not improve surrogate psychological well-being at six months, but it did improve the surrogate perception of quality of communication and the patient and family centeredness of care and reduce ICU length of stay, an effect that was present in patients who died. The lack of psychological effect may reflect low levels of psychological symptoms at six months, that the delivery of the intervention in ICU only wasn't enough, that decision-making is not as much of a burden as we hypothesise, or that the intervention was simply ineffective. The reduction in ICU length of stay in decedents combined with no difference in six-month mortality and improved person-centeredness suggests that the intervention helped surrogates transition to comfort-based care based on patients' values, that is, that these patients valued comfort over longevity. And that's a really important exploratory outcome for us to investigate further. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club. Come to the website, have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Music